Welcome to the Afghanistan Project Podcast. I'm Beth Bailey here with my co-host, Michael Cook. Today, we're bringing you another installment of our series focusing on the two-year anniversary of our withdrawal from Afghanistan. And we're talking with Joe Laud, who was a Marine Corps Sergeant in the 2nd Battalion, 1st Marine Regiment, when he was sent to Hamid Karzai International Airport to support the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan in August 2021. Joe now volunteers with Operation Allies Refuge Foundation, which advocates for veterans who endured trauma or moral injury during the course of their service. Joe, we're so grateful to you for sitting down with us to talk about what you did and what you saw during the Afghanistan departure. So thanks for joining us today. Of course. Excited to be here. Well, to start with, when did you learn that you would be going to Afghanistan and what were your feelings about that at the time? So I think it was about like the, I mean, we knew about Afghanistan uh, months before going to um, to Kabul. Uh, Kabul. It was about, uh, you know, Marines are very used to the whole patience game uh, or the standby, the standby. And I think that's kind of across the, all the branches there. Um, so we, we didn't know that was actually going to happen until like, you know, like August 13th when it was like, you know, our commanders were coming up to us and saying, Hey, you're going and uh, pack up all your stuff. Um, so it was, you know, going through all the gear lists and all that. Um, you know, I was part of uh, echo company, uh, second battalion, first Marines, uh, fourth platoon had left already, and it was about either August fifteenth uh, or the night of August fifteenth or the sixteenth that they had left. And um, you know the reports that were coming in, the intel reports, uh, they were very serious. Uh, we had no idea what was happening with um, you know the collaboration with the Taliban uh, at the time. So when we went in, like when we were you know pre uh, prepping to go. We thought we were going to get, you know, leaving to essentially become or going into a suicide mission, um, having no idea that these talks were happening and um, we're thinking that it, we were just going to be confronted by suicide, uh, IEDs, uh, VBIDs, all of that um, as we landed. Um, because, you know, the intel reports that were coming in, we were receiving a lot of um, reports on firefights happening with 10th Mountain Division, um, you know, 1st Marines, 8th, uh, or 1st Battalion, 8th Marines that were there before us. Uh, we heard about a Marine that had got shot. Um, I can't confirm or deny that actually happening. Um, but I, you know, just all the stories that of these guys just running around across the airport and it made it surreal. It made it feel like, hey, we're going to get into it. Uh, a lot of Marines were very excited about it. Um, and then there were a lot of Marines that were very anxious about it. And so those nights leading up to it, they were preparing um, or at least sitting home or making peace with their family members or they're making peace with their God. Um, so it was definitely a very surreal moment and, and people were really taking it in and, and trying to realize, hey, this might be it. That was the type of feeling that it was. It was also like, you know, my my sergeant, uh, platoon sergeant, he even said, hey, be prepared to see your friends die. Um, but, you know, I, you know, at the same time, this was it. Like this was, you know, we were raised by GWAT veterans. Um, Afghanistan was the, the big golden ticket 
for all of us. And so, you know, for a lot of us, we, we definitely wanted to go there and get some. It was, it was definitely one of those things. When you got there, was it what you expected or did, you know, did you see some things, uh, you know, what was it like when you ended up on the ground? Yeah. So, so thanks to the 10th mountain and, uh, one eight and our, you know, the platoon of that, that one platoon from our, our company, they, they cleared the airfield with the help of, you know, a, uh, Afghan unit that was attached to CIA, um, who used, you know, this, this element used different methods that, you know, we wouldn't have used, um, to clear that airfield, including, you know, killing people shooting people who are just literally pleading for their life, um, running people over in order to send a message, hey, we're not playing around. Um, you know, if you guys are staying on this airfield, we will kill you. And, uh, you know, as soon as they got that message, like, it, it definitely, I mean, it was almost like a, a necessary evil to, to clear that, that airfield for sure. But it was just, I mean, for the guys on the ground that, that had to witness that, it was definitely a... Uh, it was definitely different and, and traumatizing. I can I can realize that from their perspectives. And was that the first time that you really saw the desperation of the crowds, or what was that moment where you well, realized me, that it was overwhelming? Yeah, for me, I didn't get to see that my first Afghans um, when I first landed there. But for them, absolutely, that was that was when they actually saw it. Um, you know, these guys climbing on on C seventeens. Yeah. Um, you know, and falling from the sky. That was a, uh, a realization. Hey, these people are beyond desperate. Like that is, you know, the, the word desperation doesn't mean the same to me anymore after that. It was, it, it's something way more than, than what we say it is here in the States. And I think it's important to kind of take a sidebar here, like the reason that you know all of this of what other people were feeling is because of Operation Allies Refuge Foundation, correct? And that you've been able to liaise with all these other people who were there and talk about their experiences of that day. Absolutely. Um, Is that a healing experience to you or is it hard to carry kind of all of those, all of that knowledge and all of those feelings around? Yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, you know, the, the difficult thing about OER Foundation is, is it's, it's a trip back into the darkness again. And um, for me, like my experience, it, it, you know, I, was, I felt like I was mentally resilient as a Marine. But I think part of the, the moral injury aspect is, is it's an emotional toll that takes, that takes kind of uh, a toll after time and it builds up and um you know certain certain things that you could or couldn't do uh during that time it it, it weighs heavily on you um and then you know when you when you have these conversations with guys who had immense stories to tell and they felt like they were forgotten uh, you sh- you share that you share that burden with them when you are working uh in the foundation Mm-hmm. And it does, it, it 100% weighs heavily on you. Yeah. When, and is there any specific moments um, from HKIA that you get taken back to in your head when you, you think about people getting forgotten? I think for me, 
understanding what happened with the 10th mountain division and the, you know the the obstacles that they had to undertake and then they came home um and un, unable to talk about their situation and then you know myself being the first person that they were able to talk to for many of them it was it was definitely something that that took me back to to just the 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 simple personal feelings of isolation and, and being forgotten um there there are other incidences that you know it, when you think about like maybe flashbacks or anything like that um i think it's different it, it's it's you know the way that i see it it's it's not the same as maybe pts or ptsd where some some incident will will trigger something within like within inside of you there is something that that kind of weighs on you as a spiritual me- measure than it is a um, you know an instinct, uh, instinctual one it's got to be uh, difficult to then come back and and think about those things again so going back then and asking you to go back to that day that is difficult or those days that are difficult to think about. Um, what was the day to day like at HKM? What kinds of things were you seeing that were difficult to maybe understand as an American or as a Marine? The, the, the biggest thing to understand as an American or someone who belongs to, you know, maybe the, the Western civilization, um, is understanding that men take precedence in their culture over women. And, um, you know, under, trying to understand, like, that these men were, you know, were taking the spots of, uh, of women and children was, was hard to bear for me. It, it almost became a, uh, something that we, we held a, a lot of hostility towards these men, these single-aged men that were doing whatever it took to, to get through people. Um, yeah, it was, it was definitely difficult to understand that aspect of, of that situation. Um, because, you know, for, for most of us, uh, or at least for the guys that I was with, we were doing everything we could to, to help uh, the women and children. That was what was our priority. I know that's the same for the guys that I've talked to throughout all the other uh, other branches. Um, you know, the men and um, the, the women and children were definitely the priority um, and the single-aged men were, were definitely the problem. Mm-hmm. And what, what examples did you see of that? So there was a, I mean, at the gates for sure, uh, we saw it um, where the men would, you know, simply trample over women or children or use children as a way to say, because they knew, they knew that we, we were more, way more empathetic towards children um, than anything else. So they would, they would often sometimes grab a child and try to use it um, to, to benefit them to get through the gate, um, which was, you know, it was difficult to, to understand that. And, um, you know, it, that whole experience was just uh, surreal to me and, and to everybody else that this was the way that it was over there. Mm. 
what would end up happening to those? I mean, do you have any idea of what happened to women and children who might have been left behind so that men could come through? Well, I mean, I have no idea what happened to the, the women and children. Um, mm -hmm. I do have some concern over some of the, the men that we brought in. Um, you know, just, you know, bringing them into a society where they, they might feel disenfranchised and um, where they might, you know, they, they just don't fit or feel like they belong in a society that is totally different than the one that they're used to. There's, there is some potential for, for something dangerous to happen. Um, and we need to be careful and keep our eyes open. And, and part of what, you know, I've, I've been trying to do is, is, you know, I've been volunteering for in, in the Afghan community where I'm at, um, just to, to see if I can gain some insight into that and provide, you know, whatever coaching or mentorship that I can to help bridge the gap. Um, but that's a, that's an American problem that we, I think that all of us need to, to start integrating with and seeing if we can help because that's, you know, obviously to me is, uh, someone who's disenfranchised, that's a, that can be a serious problem and we need to fix that. Sure. And I mean, I can, in my head, I can reason it in some ways where, you know, perhaps the male of the family was the one who was under the most direct threat or had the most ability to go work outside of the country. But then women and children left in Afghanistan. I mean, I, I see it all the time. Um, I see this scenario and, you know, that women can't work. The children can't go to school after the age of sixth grade if they're females. So it's, we've really created this horrible uh, situation with that. And, and I had no idea that, that, what you described happens so often. So it's definitely an, an eye opener for me. What other kinds of things did you see that, you know, for, from a media aspect, we just saw great big crowds of people and a lot of desperation, but you saw it firsthand. So what other kinds of things were you seeing on the ground that we probably didn't get to see, you know, from the news? Yeah. Um, so in different, different things, um, I mean, there's, there's definitely a, a multitude of stories I can tell on that aspect of what the media missed out on. Um, I think the, the biggest one was seeing child, like the, the, the loss of life when it comes to children throughout that, that entire endeavor, um, because they were quickly exposed to, um, you know, um, dysentery from Abbey Gate, or they were exposed to um, the lack of resources when it comes to, you know, baby, baby formula or, you know, um, access to the medical help. Um, a lot of these people were getting crushed in the crowds, um, being stampeded and, uh, killed there. And, and people don't talk about, talk too much about that. Um, and then also the exits. Uh, I mean, obviously I think a lot of people who've been following, what's been happening, understand what happens at the exits, but, uh, the media, you know, I feel like they, they continue to, to not understand what was happening at those exits. And it was to me and, um, you know, uh, many of the people who had to witness that, that was, you know, just executions left and right or, or serious beatings that were happening at those exits. So let's go into that. I mean, you you saw this happen. You saw the Taliban was executing 
people. I want to start there and then we'll go back to the crush of the crowd. Um, what were they doing? Were they just waiting for anyone to get released? So I didn't get to witness the uh, and this is the interesting thing about the, the positioning at Abbeygate um, and the difference between where people were. The, the guys on the wall, they didn't get to witness the, the executions. But the guys in the towers, the sniper teams, they were watching this through lenses and scopes um, with the finger on the trigger, like just wishing that they could, the, they could help these people. And that was, to me, a... Um, extreme moral dilemma that they were faced with the entire time that they were there is is that you know they had absolutely the power to stop it but they didn't have the roes to stop these people from committing these crimes and uh, it's tough and it weighs heavily on on anyone who has that warrior spirit where hey i i'm more than willing to give up my life to save someone and um it's definitely tough when, you know, someone who's designed or was trained up to, to pull the trigger and uh, they couldn't do it when it when it was most needed. Sure. Do you have any idea of the the number of people? I mean, was it they were looking for specific people, the Taliban? Do you have any idea about whom they were going after? Um. So I, I have I, I don't quite know or understand if um, what who they were looking for exactly. I just know that they had that checkpoint that basically allowed people in, and they had that checkpoint at the exit. And um, from what I understand, um, you know, the guys who were pushed towards the exit, they didn't get any sympathy because they got their chance already. Um, and I'm sure that the people that we pushed because these Marines uh, or the State Department didn't clar like clarify exactly what we were, what we needed to look for. We pushed many people out that should be in America today. And uh, that continues to infuriate me to this day. Sure. What was it like to have to tell someone? I mean, what, what were the interactions like as you were having to push people out? Throughout my experience at HKI, I was definitely um, trying to stay as uh, stoic and away from my my personal emotions as possible. Uh, when I was pushing people out, like that was it. Like I was doing my I was doing my job. Um, the way that I see it now, and, and I think part of the the moral injury aspect of this this entire thing is is we have to answer for our consequences of you know whether or not we did the right thing. And uh, that's something that I think about all the time because I, I still remember the faces and, and uh, that definitely uh, keeps me up at night. What about the opposite? Did you ever get to bring someone in through the gates? Absolutely. Uh, there, was a, um, there was a moment and, you know, I was basically playing the bad guy um, up until that moment. And, you know, I was at the, I was at Abbey Gate on the wall checking for paper, for paperwork and documents. And, you know, you had a, a bunch of these Afghans and their, their accents and they're, you know, pleading for help and, and talking to me. And I hear this man and 
in the most distinct and clear American accent. He says, sir, I'm an American. Can you get me out of here? And I turned towards him and this is in the middle of the dark and you can hardly see anything, but I heard his accent. So I turned towards him and I pointed at him. And I'm like, I'm getting you the fuck out of here. And um, I, I told him to get his family and his entire family was coming over. It was like almost up to 20 people in his family and bringing them over, um, you know, and holding a child in your hand is just, you know, being up to that point and understanding what life is and, and what being a human is. It was a, uh, it was different and it, it hits, it hits you totally different when you have that experience. Um, and yeah, I brought them all over. Uh, it was like 20 of them brought them over to, to, uh, across the canal. And, uh, we brought them to the checkpoint or not to the checkpoint We're we were bringing them up to where the state department was processing them. And a Marine officer told me, Hey, you can't only immediate family only only immediate family only. And, uh, so that up, up to 20 some people is now only up to four. And, uh, you know, I brought the rest of them to, to the, to the state department's line where they were processing people. But I, in the back of my mind, I was like, no, I can't do that. I can't let them go to the exit. Um, so I chased them down. I tried to, I tried to chase them down. And I couldn't find him. I couldn't find him. I was looking for them everywhere. Um, and I was about to give up, but I actually found, I saw a face that I recognized. And I reached out and grabbed him and I said, get everyone in your family right now. I'm going to sneak you in. I want to give them, I just wanted to give them a chance. That's it. And uh, so I brought the rest of these people. It was like maybe 15 people, 18 people. Um, and I snuck them back in and the Marine officer said, Hey, the state department is not gonna, you know, accept these people. And I said, fuck the state department. And I brought them in and I gave them that, that, that chance, at least gave them that chance. And, uh, yeah, I mean, at least for that moment, it made me feel like a human in all of that. So it was definitely a, a, a very big moment for myself. Have you gotten the opportunity to meet any of the people you brought in or any of the people that uh, maybe some of your buddies brought in back here in the States? So I, I personally haven't met uh, anyone that was able to uh, get back to the States. I would love to meet that, that American that I was able to get out, but um, I do tutor um, kids, uh, Afghan kids. So I try to like, you know, trying to integrate into the community somehow to, to kind of keep, keep oversight and see how mm -hmm. it's going. And, and because their success or their failure is a, a massive deal to all of us. It, it's, it's part of the healing process. If, if they don't succeed in America, then we feel like we failed. Yeah. Um, so I feel like contributing back is, is, is definitely helpful to the healing process. And it's also helpful when, um, we understand exactly like where, where they're standing at. And you know, what the, the insight that I have right now with the refugee population in America, it's not good. Uh, what they're dealing with is not good right now. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of these kids are, are, are deciding to, you know, to turn into gangs. I've heard about that. I've heard, um, you know, these kids, some of the high schoolers are still learning at, you know, 
first grade level and and um it, it there's a lot of catching up to do and there's a lot of work to do as uh, as americans because i mean wh- who are we as americans if we don't you know help to help these people out yeah it's uh there's not as much said about the refugee population. And I think too, you know, I've tried to talk with Afghans who've come here about, you know, what are the struggles you're facing? And they're just so grateful to be here that they don't want to raise alarms about issues I've found. And I think that it's really important that we do talk about those shortcomings because you're right. I mean, it's their success, but it's also, you know, making sure that, yeah, we're doing our part as a nation um, and that the rest of the community that might not understand what they went through because they didn't pay attention for 20 years of war or uh, or that they have, you know, maybe some preconceived notions about Afghans that they see, you know, these are people who are striving, who've been through so much because they went through those crowds too on the opposite side where they... I'm watched people get crushed and, you know, watched their friends get turned away or all of these horrible things. They saw that too. And they've got to then deal with that and be refugees in this country where I just wrote a story about one family that they can't get any benefits. They didn't come through on the Neo. They came through the Mexican border and asked for asylum and are not being able to get it. Um, yet, uh, and they can't get benefits. They can't work. They can't do anything. I mean, that's a very difficult situation to be in and think about, yeah, there's a lot there to unpack. I'm grateful that you're doing that work and seeing those difficult things. Um, what about, let's go back to, you talked about the people being crushed in those crowds. Could you see that from your vantage point? So, what I was able to witness, I, I, I didn't get to see the, the crushing crowd. So there was an, an initial push into Abbey Gate um, before I was able to get there. Um, and throughout that push, there was, you know, um, a deployment of CS gas that led to a stampede. And... Um, if for, for those who are listening, CS gas is essentially like the, the riot control tear gas, um, which is non-lethal, but it is devastating. And it, it definitely does hurt um, to inhale. But these people, after the, that deployment, there, there were a lot, definitely a lot of people who were crushing each other and ended up killing. A, I, I, I can't say the exact number, but there was definitely a, a few that had that were definitely crushed to death in that stampede. Um, but for the, for the, some of the things that I was able to, to see or witness was I saw, um, the individuals in the canal getting really just destroyed by the sea wire that you couldn't even see the sea wire because it was so hidden underneath the water and they would be stepping in it and getting cut up. And you got to think the the water was, was sewage. It was, you know, it was, um, all the, you know, the shit coming out of the, out of the city and, uh, people were and children were, I know that there were children or reports of children dying from that, from that, um, from that illness there, from getting cut up there. Um, 
so it was it was definitely difficult to see the situation there and it was almost surreal to, to know that people were willing to go through that city and then go through that canal um, and then attempt to, to try to get to the, into that processing line that the State Department had. It was just, I, I don't know if I could have done that. That was... Yeah, and that's like, uh, I mean, that's how we to, were sending I mean, people, groups like, you know, Pineapple that. Express, you know, go through the canal because it was the only way to access, mm-hmm. you know, get attention at the gate. And it's... It's horrid. It always reminds me of how the Taliban would often lace their IEDs with fecal matter because they knew that then, you know, you would have the transfer of germs into wounded flesh and create even more damage. And that's what I think about when I hear about the seawire and the sewage canal. It's just horrid. There is never, it feels like an end to, um, the gore and disgustingness of um, our Afghan war. Uh, it, what was it like to mentally process? Did you mentally process any of this at the time or was this kind of like an afterwards, you know, were you just going on during these days? Yeah, I was able to, I was able to, to, kind of reflect on it at the same time. Um, to me, it was obvious, like this was just the, the entire collapse of the GWAT uh, in front of our eyes. Um, it was a fall of a nation. And to me, it felt like it was the beginning of the fall of America. Like this was a very significant event that kind of really just reflected the um, the, the weakness that we've just become accustomed to. Um, and it just was not the way that it should have, should have went down. And I I will say on behalf of most of the guys I was with that they were all feeling this, this same type of way as well. Um, it wasn't a good, good experience when it comes to the way that we thought about our country back at home while we, while we were there. Um, and it was also just, it was just definitely tough, um, for a lot of the younger guys to process what was happening when it came to, um, you know, seeing, just seeing everything unfold like that. Do you remember the first time that you saw, um, someone from the Taliban where that was and how that felt to you? Yeah. So, I was on Abbey Gate, and um, I just remember standing on the wall, and right there, like right in front of my face, I just saw some some uh, a group of look like Taliban, like more like Taliban elders, show up, like you know, essentially maybe commanders um, show up, and they stand right in front of me uh, across from the wall, and it was surreal. It was, it was almost like, um, like I, I should have, I should be like, my brother was fighting these guys a few, like a, a few years back. It, it just didn't seem right. It didn't sit well in my gut. Uh, you know, I just, 
it, it was one of those moments where it felt more like I should have been flicking the weapon off safe <laughs> more than yeah. just, you know, allowing them to just to stand there. So it was definitely, it, it was definitely an uh, awkward moment. I've heard some um, people who were at HKIA talk about kind of the Taliban taunting them in some ways. Did you feel like they were trying to do that at all or were they just kind of show a force? What was their attitude? I had a good, I had a good buddy that, um, that I was with in my machine guns uh, section and they went after post-blast to go grab equipment and do a kind of an, an analysis of what happened on that, that on the X. And he went with his staff sergeant to go speak with um, some of the Taliban leadership. And he had a moment in that time where one of the Taliban guys uh, was standing there right in front of him. And the Taliban guy was, you know, taunting him by flicking his weapon off safe like on and off safe and basically making a big joke out of it. And, uh, he was doing the same thing. He looked at him straight in the head, like doing the same thing back at him. But, you know, it was after those moments where it's like, you can't just, you know, exact revenge on, on these people. And it just felt like these people were behind it. Just definitely felt like they were behind it. Um, and you couldn't do anything about it. I can't imagine that feeling, you know, I don't, I don't think I'd ever heard anyone talk about that until, uh, the house hearing, um, was it Tyler Vargas Smith talked about being up in the sniper nest and not being able to pull the trigger on somebody who he felt was probably the person who had the bomb at Abbey gate and just nobody ever got to hear those stories. Um, what other things happened that were difficult to process that, that we just didn't get to see that are still tough? Um, I would definitely say that it, it was definitely a, a clash of cultures um, throughout that entire thing, um, which is definitely difficult. Um, and then seeing a, an individual leave his family and, and, you know, having a discussion with this person about, um, I mean, he asked me about what to do about his, his leaving his daughter at the gate. And I told him to go fucking back. And I told him like, you need to go back to your daughter and your children right now. And then uh, an hour or so later, seeing him walk up to uh, walk up into a plane without them. Um, it was definitely, uh, that was like the, the thing that was the most difficult is understanding the cultures and, and not everybody's like that. Um, there was definitely, uh, individuals out there that, that did anything for their family. And, um, but, but seeing some, some individuals or a lot of individuals, uh, do things that just didn't make sense to us. And that might be just, human desperation and that we don't know about. Um, but you know, the, sometimes I, I, I see it in a different light because I, you know, we, we see what happened in Ukraine, um, where the men stayed back and fought. Um, and so that, that was also a very disappointing moment, uh, when we realized like, 
that they they did stand a fighting chance. They really did. And they decided uh, not to fight. They gave up. They gave up all the fobs. They gave up all the the posts. They gave it up. And uh, that was that was difficult for us to understand as Marines, as soldiers and airmen and, and sailors that were all there. It was definitely very difficult to understand that. Mm. It's just an endless stream of, of difficult things. And, and I know we're going to talk about Abby and the bombing at Abbey Gate for another episode. So I don't want to um, get into that here. Uh, but how long were you also, I'd like to correct the record. It's not Tyler Vargas Smith. It's Tyler Vargas Andrews. Um, sorry, Tyler, if you're listening. Um, you were after Abby, how many days were you guys still in country after the bombing? I mean, so we were there for, uh, on the 27th and the 28th. So two days after, um, within those days, we conducted a, a retrograde and, um, you know, like, uh, captain, uh, Barnheisel, who was, who was on the podcast before, uh, he stated correctly, like we, we exacted our revenge because we couldn't go out on patrol and, and get into a firefight. We exacted revenge on all the things that were around us. Um, so we destroyed everything. Um, that, that happened on the 28th, uh, where we destroyed all the vehicles, destroyed, you know, literally everything, all the infrastructure on that airport. Um, uh, the day before that was when we had a, where we walked our, uh, our fallen to the planes. And that was a, uh, a very surreal moment as well. Like, you know, I say surreal all the time, but it was like, it, it's hard to, to comprehend like that, that act, these events actually happened. And uh, we walked them through and it seemed like the entire, like all the units that were there lined up the streets to pay tribute. And, um, you know, we marched, we marched through the streets um, and, you know, we carried our dead to, uh, uh, to the plains. And um, yeah, it was, it was just something different. And uh, I don't know, it was, it was one of those moments for sure. I've never heard anyone talk about about that moment before. Um, what, so can you kind of paint the picture for us and talk about, uh, you said you're going through the streets and it was everybody escorting all these bodies. Yeah, so <clears throat> we had about, um, I mean, it looked like the entire NATO forces that were there, the British, the Spanish, the Italians, they lined the streets, um, and then two one walks, literally down all the streets, um, while these people are literally lined up alongside of it, um, as we escorted our, our fallen uh, to the planes, and it was, it, it was very, um, I don't know, it just it it makes you feel like, you know, one thing like yes, it, it's nice to have everybody paying tribute, but it's also very, very sad that, that this, this event had, had, you know, had happened and we could have done something about it, you know, hindsight bias. Um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely an interesting moment for sure. 
Do you think what were the, um, you know, I, I think we all say that it didn't have to happen. And I think that's very accurate. Was there, was there any, like a couple of things that you could pinpoint that, you know, we, you wish we would have done differently? Yeah, I think, uh, before we even stepped off, we knew that, um, Kabul was a bad option. Um, yeah, uh, we knew that that Bagram would have been optimal. Um, yeah, I think we almost went in without a plan, um, and we had to come up with everything on the fly. And I have to give great credit to, um, you know, our commanders, especially like for my for my commander, Captain uh, Captain Barnheisel. For, for really stepping up and, and really put, like providing for us um, the best solutions that he could come up with. Um, and it really did come down to those, those, uh, those leaders at those levels. Um, you know, the, the company commanders, the, the platoon commanders and, and the, the NCOs and sergeants that were, that were involved there. It really came down to, to every unit leader coming together and, and putting this all together. It wasn't, it wasn't really the, uh, the role of, of, you know, the, the higher ups, like beyond that, it was really like everything was happening on the fly. And so we have to really give credit to all the company commanders that were there putting this all together. Um, and then some of the, the battalion, um, operations officers who were, who were really working in like, endless hours, like making sure that everything was being put into place. Um, especially like the guys that, that came off the, the 24th Mew or, or first battalion, eighth Marines who, who were really working in those hours to make sure everything was working together. Um, I have to give credit to those guys. It was, everything was on the fly. Um, everything was changing left and right. And they made sure that things were, were getting processed and, and people were working, um, where they weren't just literally working for, for way too long, where they couldn't get a break. Um, they did a good job for sure. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, the, um, you know, the acts by the Marines and soldiers and all our armed forces on the ground was, you know, really nothing short of heroic. Um, and I know we're me and Beth are just proud as hell of everybody that was there. It's the constant theme of, of all of these episodes is how much, of a difference people who are not the leaders of our country made. I mean, the leaders were kind of absent and it was the American people who, who were not in leadership who really uh, pulled through and turned this into not a total clusterfuck. Um, what, when you came back, you know, you mentioned that 10th mountain couldn't talk about what, went on were you able to discuss what you had seen or were you discouraged from doing that i can't say whether or not we were discouraged from it we did see what was happening at 1-8 um there were some videos that came out um and they tried to destroy this guy um you guys know him um mm -hmm. and to me it was it was very um I mean, I think it, it, that takes away from, from what, you know, part of the after action that needs to happen is, is these guys need to start releasing it instead of holding it in. 
and uh, the more that you really like hold it in, it's 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 just gonna take its its course on you. Um, so it, the, as soon as you come home, you like start start pouring it out and then letting people know and, and building that support system around you instead of like you know hiding it and, and going like going further into isolation. Tenth um, Mountain, uh, they had a difficult time with this. They, they came home and they went straight back, like went right back in the training. Um, and it doesn't help being in Fort Drum. Uh, if you've ever been up in that area, it's not, it's not the, the, the nicest area to kind of relax, but, um, they, for some reason, they, a lot of these guys were, just didn't feel comfortable or, or weren't able to uh, share their story and, and that, to me, that was like something that needed to change and, and we needed to, to kind of target that population, especially. Um, they had suffered uh, when they came home and, um, you know, they had lost someone. Um, so it was, it was definitely very difficult when they came home and they had to, to kind of be sat down. There's, you know, there's an individual from 10th Mountain. His name's uh, First Sergeant Andrew Kelly and, and he really helped uh, mold these guys, and, and uh, I, to me, I, I think he's the, the guy that, that kept these guys together for sure, and kept these guys with their you know their heads together for sure. And, and there's still a lot of work to do with, within those communities, but you know, uh, you, he definitely paved the path for sure for these guys. That's really good to hear um, because leaders really can make a difference and they can be found everywhere. Um, speaking of which, when did you start working with OAR? When did, when did OAR get created? Yeah. So I actually created OAR. Um, I founded it, um, as soon as the first anniversary, uh, anniversary happened, I was doing like making my rounds with all the phone calls, um, to all my guys. And I was like checking in on them and I was like, man, these we're not doing too good uh, mentally. And I just felt like, hey, we needed to do something. Um, we needed to bring all these guys back together. Uh, and it doesn't just include, you know, two one. It includes all of us that participated in this event. So that's when we started uh, the Instagram. Uh, I got the Instagram up and running. Um, and we just, uh, just the number of, of people just flooding into it, was, it was, it was awesome to see that and uh, getting the stories uh, as soon as possible out. Literally like taking, um, you know, starting, I think it was August 8th when we started it and just getting a bunch of stories throughout August um, up on the page and, and making people feel like, hey, people actually care about us. Um, that was immensely powerful for all of us. Um, the where's, the best, yeah. where's the best place for um, people to find you? We're definitely like uh, most heavily like active on Instagram uh, or website. You can definitely hit us up at Operation Allies Refuge Foundation .org, um, and find our, uh, or contact us that way. Um, but you know the the Instagram is definitely the most powerful um, place where we're the most active at. Um, but yeah, definitely like it, it's we're definitely open. I try to to answer everybody's DMs and. and make sure that everybody's heard. So I make that a priority. I 
think it's the most important thing that can be done right now. Give those stories a place, give people a place where they can feel safe just talking about what happened because so few people want to talk about it and want to talk about the aftermath, the refugees who've been brought here, the people we left behind. It's, it's, I had never said it before, but you said it today, you know, kind of felt like the start of a fall of a nation. Um, I think that Tom Schumann referred to it as like end state nation behavior or something like that. It was something, you know, where like you, this is not the behavior of a country that's faring well. Um, and we want to pretend like that's not the case. And I think it's really important to talk about these things. And because history cannot look on this as a success. And that's all I see the State Department trying to do is manufacture a success out of something that they failed utterly to handle. It's really difficult to hear all the things, you know, all the, all the hard things that you guys had to see, but I'm just really grateful that you've created a place where they can be heard and be seen. So thanks for doing that. And for being here today, is there anything that you'd want to leave listeners with, um, you know, about OAR or about HKIA that we didn't touch on? Absolutely. Um, for all the, the OAR vets, out there you hold stake in this foundation like this is your foundation um this is this was made for you and and this is by you like this is everything that we're trying to to do to to um kind of elevate the community like we're not we're not victims to this event we're using this event to become more powerful than um than, than all the things that are trying to take us down, even the government. So we're definitely going to use this this foundation to, to make us a, a better community and, and keep us intact, for sure. I love it. Um, well, closing, uh, most of our listeners know that we like to end our episodes with a story um, from someone from Afghanistan, uh, just about maybe the ordeals that they've undergone, during 20 years of war nearly, or more than that, really, if we look at Afghanistan's history, or the return to Taliban rule, or being at HKIA, anything. Uh, but again, we are out of stories to share. So this is yet another plug that um, Michael and I want to hear from Afghans about their experience in any form that they want to share their story. Uh, we'd like to share it here. It's It's one thing for us to talk about how terrible the situation is, but I think it's quite another for uh, the world to hear the voices of Afghans talking about what they've been through and what they've seen. So please send us letters, poetry, art uh, about your situation to our show address, which is the Afghanistan Project Podcast at gmail.com. Joe, thanks so much for taking us back to HKIA and all those difficult moments. It really was powerful. Of course. Of course, this is cathartic for sure. Well, to all our listeners, thanks again for sharing time with us and supporting the people of Afghanistan and all of the men and women who went to help with our departure there. And uh, Tasha Kaur, we hope to see you again soon.